Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Change on the Run podcast, where we discuss common change challenges and ways to address them when you're short of time. And I'm your host, Phil Buckley. Today's topic is measuring success. Measuring success is an important part of setting up and managing a change project because it defines tangible indicators of the benefits realized from the initiative. In a rush to get a project going, it's easy to miss or gloss over this crucial step, making it difficult to demonstrate progress and achievements throughout and after the project. So how do you measure success to estimate the benefits of change and the approach taken to realize them? My guest today is Tim Creasy. Tim, welcome back to the show. It's great to be chatting again. Great to be back. Thanks for the invitation, Phil. Thanks, Tim. And Tim is the Chief Innovation Officer of ProSci, a research-based change management certification, training, and consulting company featuring the ProSci ADCAR model. He holds an MBA from Boston University and BA Economics and Political Science from Colorado State University. Tim is the co-author of Change Management, the people side of change. Tim, what's been your experience with measuring success and change? Phil, thanks for bringing this topic to the table. I think it's one that as disciplines evolve, measurement becomes more of a focus. And I think this discipline of change and change management is getting here. But I do think there's a bit of history in this experience with measuring change that I think sets some of the stage. So in 2011 was the first time I was up on a big stage. It was the very first ACMP Global Conference. Daryl Connor, Thad Allen, and John Cotter were our keynotes that year. It was down in Orlando. I met one of my best friends, Patrick McCree, at that event as well. And my talk at that conference, first time on a big stage, was around the challenges of measurement. And this whole idea that once we start to try to influence the people side of change, we fundamentally change how that change is going to play out. And so the ROI, when we have impacted the path or the journey that the the change took, you don't get to measure as is in 2B when you're calculating ROI. You're really looking at could be and could be. How could this change play out if we drop change on people's heads versus how could this change play out if we actively engage and support and prepare our people through it? In 2013, it became a real big focus of the ProSci research study, and we did a real deep dive there that laid the foundation for the measurement framework and model ProSci built. That was called the Change Scorecard, and I collaborated with D. Scott Ross, who was one of the ProSci master instructors at the time, and he and I wrote a chapter for the fourth edition of Practicing Organization Development, edited by Stavros, Sullivan, and Rothwell. That was in 2015, and I kind of joked then that I was intrigued by the OD community coming for a chapter on measurement because that felt even farther away from uh, what might be in their wheelhouse. But that was where we introduced the change scorecard, the three dimensions and how we start to define where we're trying to get and measure how we're doing on our change efforts. So it's really been a key topic in a lot of the conversations and the work that we've done both in development and in supporting our clients. Thanks for going through the progressions of views on how to measure change. Let's go to ROI because I remember early in my career, I was in training and development and how do you justify the expense and the default was going to ROI. ROI. This is the ultimate measure. Are the benefits going to be valued higher than the cost of that getting those benefits? And then people would try and make some sort of a calculation and typically it would go to something subjective. So Tim, what's the percentage benefit of sales that you got from going to this three-hour training course on how to sell? But that was way back when. What's your views now on ROI in relation to how you measure benefits of change? 
we got a couple of different ways we'll look at ROI. One is that challenge, right? The ROI of a process change. We look at the cost of the process before, the cost of the process after, what it cost us to make that change, and we get that delta. So the delta is cost before, cost after the process. The delta when we are in impacting how we prepare, equip, and support our people through change is, again, that could be, could be. I was reading Michael Crichton's timeline as I was flying down for that 2011 speech, and I thought, you know, if we could run parallel universes, one in which we train all of our people and one in which we don't, or one in which we apply good change management, one in which we don't, and then compare the two, we could come up with a similar ROI calculation like you see on process optimizations or technology implementations. Unfortunately, we've not figured out how to crack the multiverse. And so we have to take our best guess and best expectation of what the value of preparing our people is going to be through this change. One of our instructors, his name was JJ Johnson, one of the very first ProSci instructors, an amazing man. He used to talk about ROI in two different ways, return on investment and risk of indifference. So return on investments, the first one that you introduced, and I actually think, Phil, there is a lot of Harry Potter math being done in some of those ROI calculations. And a lot of that fake math is based on egregious assumptions about the people side of ROI factors. And in ProSci, we define those as speed of adoption, ultimate utilization, proficiency. So when the ROI calculation was being concocted, what assumptions did we make about speed of adoption? I'm not a betting man, but I'll bet you you assumed everybody adopted the day you flip the switch. What assumptions did you make about ultimate utilization? Again, I'll bet you it's not in your calculation, but you probably figured 100% utilization. And what estimations did you build in around the proficiency? Whether or not people are going to be able to do the job the way you think they're going to be able to do it when you built this model for calculating your ROI. Oh, you assumed they were going to be experts instantaneously at 100%. So those egregious assumptions about the people side create these phony ROI calculations to begin with. What we do is we try to add human factors into calculations. You can actually do some pretty sophisticated scenario analysis to look at what is the impact of delays in speed of adoption, lower utilization, or worse proficiency than we expected. So that's the ROI side and how we can add a little more refinement by bringing people into the calculation. And then risk of indifference is the other side, Phil. And I'll bet you you've run into this all the time, right? The risk of indifference when it comes to engaging our people through change. Absolutely. Isn't it interesting? The assumption a lot of leaders and change people will put in is that things will just be the same. You won't get diminishing returns from whatever you're doing now, and you'll have steady declines. That there's almost, oh, okay, well, we'll just stay the way we are. But typically, that's not the case when you don't have an optimized way of working. Do you find that as well? Yeah, Phil, I think you're right that there's this assumption that no change means everything stays the same. But I think you're right. If we don't make a change, it doesn't mean everything will continue on as is. There's a propensity that it might go a different direction. And we're recording this in October of 21. So the last 17 months have proven that you really can't count on anything not changing and shifting in a condition, a curveball coming out of this place or that place. So in that condition, I think it's even more important, right, that we step forward into this space. And that's such a great point, Tim, because so many of our assumptions before 
COVID came and the pandemic came, we could rely on and we could future pace them. This will be the way it is in the future. And, and as you say, there's so many things that we really don't know how they will pan out and to what degree will we go back to past models. A lot of people would suggest new models are the way that we need to look at things now. But in view of measuring success for change, we really don't know have you had any conversations with leaders to talk about the challenge of predictability within our current times now and how that will impact our measurement of what good looks like in the future? Yeah, I do believe that out of the pandemic, two of the big shifts that we saw in the world of change was shifting horizons of the definition of success and iterative and adaptive by necessity. And so shifting horizons, I have a nice slide I use in some of my presentations that begins with like a long lens shot of a horizon five miles away, because that's the horizon for success that we used in February of 2020. That was the horizon we were looking to. In March of 2020, it became a five-hour or five-day horizon of success, right? How do I get through today? Can we get through this week? And so the second image I use is of a brick wall, a close-up of a brick wall, because that horizon used to be way far off. It became a brick wall. But I believe we're elevating the, the horizon a bit now. It's not five years out. It's not the brick wall, but it's something closer. It's more of a five-week, five-month horizon rather than that five-year horizon. But it, thank goodness it's no longer that five-hour horizon. And then the notion that iteration by necessity is the way we're going to have to adapt to change because conditions are continuing to adapt and adjust. And so to base any plans on a foundation that we know is likely to shift is just going to cause us to have to rebuild the foundation. I'll take a quick digression, so we'll come back here. You know that phrase, future-proof? Drives me crazy. Drives me crazy because you proof stuff that you don't want to happen. A bulletproof window doesn't let a bullet go through it. Waterproof shoes don't let water go through them. You proof something when you don't want it to happen. So we shouldn't be trying to proof the future. We should be getting ready for the future. And I think that's really about establishing this foundation and expectation that horizons are shorter, things are going to change. If we can't agree on what it's going to look like way far out, let's agree on what those short-term markers of success that will move us closer to where we want to get to be are. So I think that we're going to be shifting the notion of the measurements, which I think tips into the kind of measures we use. I'll tee up these three and see if you have thoughts about them, and then we can kind of dive into each of them. Measures need to be valid, practical, and actionable. And this comes out of some beautiful work that Andy Horlick and Lisa Kempton have done in support of the ProSci Change Scorecard. They're both development folks actually up in Canada, Phil. They live out there in Vancouver. Valid, practical, and actionable. And I think if you set that into the context of shifting horizons and iterative change by necessity, we're going to have to focus on even more valid, even more practical, and even more actionable measures. If we could look through the lens of the three requirements, how do you inform someone about what a good measure does look like when their perception of where they're trying to go is perhaps not realistic given the information they'll get now. So for example, the five-year plan. To me, there's an anchoring there about what is it we're trying to achieve in the first mm -hmm. place. Before we get spun around the axle on the specific metrics that are going to be used, I think we need agreement on the measures of what would mark that we are moving in the direction we want to move in. So this really became a centerpiece of ProSize 2021 enhancements is elevating and anchoring to the definition of success for the initiative itself. So that's where we now begin. The entirety of even the application of the discipline of change management begins with anchoring to what are the actual project objectives and organizational benefits? 
what will the project deliver and how will the organization benefit when this chain is ultimately landed. And if we can't anchor there, we've not anchored on the to what end of this initiative. We don't have the flag planted on the horizon that we can all orient and aim toward. And Peter Senge has this amazing quote, and it's much too long for me to have memorized, so I'm paraphrasing it now. Surely. Here's my paraphrase of Senge's quote. Empowerment without alignment only amplifies the chaos. Empowerment without alignment only amplifies the chaos. And we're in a time where we need to empower people to rapidly react and respond and seize what's in front of them. But in order to empower our people, we got to align on where we're going. Absolutely. And what happens when an organization doesn't know where it's going? And more often than not now, after 19 months of maintenance, safety, continuation of operations or continuation of managing your mandate if you're a not-for-profit or or government organization. It really isn't clear where we want to go, but we want to change. How do you help an organization like that? Well, what's interesting, Phil, is I think you brought up two different things in the question. One is defining where to go, and one is that people clearly understand where we're trying to go. Same thing happens on projects, right? This idea of defining success. Where are we trying to go with the initiative versus people clearly understand? senior leaders own defining success. The senior leader owns defining where we're trying to get to in this initiative. The change practitioner owns extracting and packaging and socializing and measuring and tracking. But a lot of times what happens, Phil, is that leader knew it, right? Because they've been thinking about it for a couple of years before they even launched this initiative. It's all there, but it's never been extracted. And so we never got it captured and articulated. And I think that's actually the biggest challenge here, Phil, is not that we didn't know where we were going. It's that we didn't go through the hard work of translating it, defining it, getting it clear enough that we could socialize it and track it. Same thing happens on the people side. The ProSci measurement frame really has three dimensions, is the organization getting what it needs to out of the project, are individuals making their own change journeys effectively, and then how well are we doing change management? That middle rung, are people actually making the change we needed them to make? The predecessor to that is, did we actually define the change they need to make and how they do their jobs, right? And that's the kicker of measurement client says, we're rolling out a cloud-based CRM. I say, great. What does that mean to how your account executive shows up each day? No, you didn't hear us. We're rolling out a cloud-based CRM. I understand that that's the project. If I'm going to measure whether or not that account executive is successfully adopting and using your new cloud-based CRM, I need to know how his or her job is going to change. And so I actually think it's really extracting and adding clarity to to where we're going as opposed to not actually knowing where we're going. The gap that has plagued me, not assigning accountability for measurement, completely skipping over that step. Have you ever seen that with some of your clients so that everything's done perfectly, except no one knew they were supposed to measure and either it's too late or the person that you thought would do it is not doing it or is not available, or even the data that we thought was there you can't retrieve it. What's been your experience with accountability for the actual measurement? Yeah, I think it's one of these questions we want to make sure to answer at the beginning, not the end. So that's one of the things, again, in the ProSize Enhanced 2021 methodology is elevation of that definition of success out of the gate and who owns the metrics, the measures, the value we're trying to create. Because I think you're right, valid, practical, and actionable were those three components of effective measures. Practical means we can actually access the data without working too hard. I believe all data is accessible 
my background's in economics. Perfect information is a thing, but it takes cost and time and energy and effort to access the data. And so it's around striking the right balance of putting in the effort to get the data that would inform us in that actionable piece. What is the next step I'm going to do with the data that I have here? One of the reasons I think people shy away from measures is because the measures that they were being presented were not valid, not practical, and not actionable. And so they were being asked to expend a bunch of energy measuring stuff that didn't really matter all that much, as opposed to putting in the right amount of effort to help us take the next best step, which is really what the measure should be doing. This shouldn't be an end-of-the-year report card. It should be a mid quarter progress indicator that helps me get my kid back on track in his algebra homework. We're not trying to judge here. We're trying to do better and deliver better value to the business. And as you say that there's project objectives and organizational benefits. And one of the questions that you use, which I love is how will you know? It's great to have the measure, but how will we know? And I think Part of that is you have the numbers piece of it, but then you have more of the anecdotal or observational. How do they interplay? Yeah, good question. Because I know we gravitate towards the hard data, right? As opposed to the soft indicators, the observation. A couple of thoughts here. First, a quick digression, but I think it's kind of interesting. All numbers are meaningless without context. Every data point is meaningless without context. We ran a report, we got a 13. I have no idea if a 13 is good or bad, and I don't know which direction it's going, and I don't know what your goal is. If your target is five and it has dropped from 50 down to 13, you're on a good track. If your goal is 98 and it's been hovering around 12, you're not in a good place. So any data point is meaningless without context. I also think you can represent anything with a number. The key is, are we sensing the actual performance based on what it is we're measuring. A lot of our conversation comes around expectations, whether it's the project team, the leadership team, if we're all on the same page about what measures we're going to hold, the assumption is is that we'll probably be more aligned as we go through the whole initiative. How do you align people to how we're going to measure and what that means and what the appropriate context is at, at certain points throughout an initiative? Great question. And like, you know, my paraphrasing of the Senge quote, if we empower without that alignment, we're only amplifying the chaos. So getting that anchor and alignment, I think is critical. One of the phrases my team hears more than anything is to what end? And whether it's writing an email or building a new web app or designing a new half day program on how to actively engage a sponsor more effectively, we will make sure that we spend the extra time to align on a shared understanding of the to what end that we're trying to achieve. You'll notice in the change scorecard chapter that D. Scott Ross and I wrote, you know, he really talks about the critical nature nature of the scorecard as being an instrument of agreement right there at the beginning, Phil. You imagine you're filling out a table of benefits for the project. We have what is the metric? Who is the owner? How important is it? What's the baseline? How frequently are we going to measure it? And that gets laid out from the beginning in that scorecard. So it's part of that upfront agreement of where we are all trying to get to together, which I think is quintessentially part of change leadership, agreement on where we're trying to get to together. An agreed scorecard or dashboard, what makes a good one that can have high utility that leaders, the project team, the change team, whomever can rally around and either make decisions or come to agreement on? What does a good one look like in your view? So I'm going to borrow from Karen Ball, who's my EVP at ProSci Leads Marketing and Development. She talks about making heads up decisions. We all talk about data informed decisions 
applications, we all know how much data is out there. And we run the risk of being consumed by data that actually floods our ability to navigate this complex world that we're living in. And so rather than data-driven decisions, Karen talks about heads-up decisions, which indicates that we've processed and taken in the data, the signals, the inputs from all the various sources. We're not just watching one dial to the 100,000th specificity. We are really maintaining a high sense of attunement to everything that's going on around us in order to make up that heads-up decision. And so I would think about what do I want on the dashboard that would enable those heads-up decisions? And it's going to look different. We have clients that are rolling out ERPs to 250,000 employees around the planet. That's very different. That dashboard is going to look more complex than rolling out a new headquarters model for 200 people. So the dashboard, again, needs to reflect the situation, but we want to enable those heads-up decisions. Scott Franklin was an instructor. He taught ProSci programs for one of our affiliates back in the day uh, at an engineering firm. He introduced me to the phrase, interesting but not relevant. That's a phrase that I think we'd want to process ourselves as we're building out our dashboard, because a lot of things would be interesting to us, but not relevant to enable those heads up decision makers by that leader that you're having look at it. And then my last thought here brings the notion of some empathy mapping, this idea of when your leader is looking at your dashboard, what do you want them to see, feel, think, or do differently as a result of engaging with that dashboard? See, feel, think, do. And I just think that empathy frame helps a lot. I bring it into how do I structure a 30-minute meeting with somebody? I think it gives us that anchor in the person who's going to experience the thing we're building as opposed to the thing we're building and us as the builder. And so I might take that as just a tactic as I was starting to process through what belongs on this dashboard, what I want them to see, feel, think, and do differently, and how will I enable them to make heads-up decisions with interesting and relevant data. I don't know if you've seen this before, but sometimes once the metrics are set, that becomes the goal versus what they're meant to be indicating. Marilyn Strather, an anthropologist, states that when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. When you have the indicator, there's a temptation to either game the system or game the metric. And it's almost like going through university or college, it's all about marks versus learning because that's how you're being measured. Any advice on how to encourage people not to be just hitting the number, hitting the 13 versus what the 13 would represent within context of what we're trying to achieve? Yeah, great question. I certainly understand the potential of it becoming a game. I think the first thing is what you just described. Make sure the 13 represents the behavior or the outcome we're trying to achieve. Because if the 13 is actually indicative and representative of us achieving the change we are trying to achieve, then go for the 13, right? The reality is we're dealing with multifaceted, pretty complex changes in complex organizations and situations. And the likelihood that that 13 fully represents the achievement of what we set out to achieve when we took on this change is probably not all that likely. So I can understand us not wanting to chase the number, but to chase what the number was supposed to represent. The other way that we address this in the ProSide Change Scorecard is we use both outcome and activity measures. So we have two outcome measures. Did the project deliver the improvement to the organization that was expected? And did people successfully navigate their own personal transition? And then we have the activity measure of how well were we executing the activities of change management? And we can look at that individual one as just a quick example of the difference between an outcome versus an activity measure. Butts in seats is an activity measure for training. Were they all in the training? An outcome measure would be, did they gain the knowledge to be able to complete this task that they now have to be able to complete? 
a focus on outcomes instead of just activities makes it harder to game the system when we've actually articulated and defined the outcome we're trying to get to. Because open rates of the email is not what we're trying to achieve. It's building enough people in the organization that would step up and say, yes, I understand exactly why we're doing this change, why we're doing it now, and the risk if we're not changing. And that's the awareness outcome achieved through the activity of having sent out that email. And you'd mentioned earlier that leaders are accountable for defining what success looks like. Within measuring success throughout the project from beginning to end, are there any other accountabilities that you think they're best suited to take on and to own? Exactly like we said, I think leaders own defining success. So the leader is the one that owns planting on the horizon what it is we're trying to achieve. They are the ones that define what the finish line is. It's not on time, on budget, buttons work. It's we increased market share by this much. We reduced costs by that much. We reduced error rates by that much. I think the senior leader owns maintaining priority and focus where it needs to be across that life of the project itself. We actually did a full benchmarking research report on sustainment, the whole idea of sustaining outcomes and change. One of the interesting things there was around roles in who is involved in measuring and sustaining outcomes, and that there's a difference between who's preparing us to sustain and then who's sustaining us. Preparing the sustainment activities, putting in place the measures, putting in place the systems to actively measure is part of the change itself. Sustainment then needs to be owned in the business, our frontline managers where the change is happening. So I think figuring out how to effectively pass the baton of architecting measurement and sustainment approaches into the execution and steering the business based on those measurements is important. It's really important for leaders to become knowledgeable enough to ask relevant questions about the data and the measurements. There's nothing that will lose a leader credibility faster than asking questions that indicate that they have absolutely no idea what the moving parts are on this project. So if you are a leader or are going to bang the drum of metrics and measures, you better be ready to at least ask informed questions. You mentioned the sustainment, passing the baton to the business and to continue measuring. And from my experience, even if the intent is to do so, the project team's disbanded, the leaders are moving on to other initiatives and challenges and strategies. The intent is there, but nobody is gathering to review the benefits or to have a conversation and ask the right questions if there are gaps that were unanticipated. Any thoughts about how you motivate the organization? to stay within the measurement mindset when there's so much going on, how you incite or incent the organization to keep measuring the benefits from the change. It's interesting, Phil, because I go right back to the question of, do we need to still be measuring the benefits of this change? And I think it ends up in this interesting calendar conundrum that we need to measure benefits past go live. And in our methodology, we're actually now putting a milestone, three critical technical milestones, kickoff, go live, and outcomes. We need to at least measure out to that outcome date and maybe a little bit past that. We don't want to have the business continue to measure when it's no longer valuable for the business to continue to measure. And so we don't want to measure too short along that project life cycle where we've not got into outcomes, but we also don't want to create untenable measurements regime, especially if the change has already been folded into business as usual. And it's now just the way we do things here. I think meaningless measures get tossed out. 
And not only do they get tossed out, they leave a wake of miserable measurement that every future project has to step into. And so being strategic and thoughtful, intentionality and what we're going to measure, how we're going to measure, how long we're going to measure, that I think sets the stage for more effectively steering our change initiatives in a heads up way. And as we know, there's so much going on right now and so much change for most organizations. In the spirit of change on the run, if you only had time to do one action to enable good measurement, you're brought in, you only can do one thing, what would be that one thing that you would do to help that organization measure change successfully? Where are we going to get the most lift? I think I go right to agreeing on the finish line. If we can agree on the to what end, what we're trying to achieve and deliver, we've created the platform and the space to really empower and drive the kind of change that organizations need today. Great. Thank you. Great advice, Tim. And as we close off the podcast, is there a watch out, a thought to sum up our conversation today? I think my bit of advice would be never assume we're on the same page. Always put in that extra effort to test and validate that we're both seeing that finish line the same way. There's a lot of times where we think we're on the same page, but we're actually not on the same page. And if my finish line is a little bit over here and your finish line's a little bit over there, we can both be working really hard doing what we think is the right good work and still getting farther and farther apart. I always try to take an extra lap around the track just to make sure that we are on the exact same page so that we're ready to move forward together. Great advice. Thanks, Tim. Thanks so much for being on the Change on the Run podcast. How can people get in contact with you? Yeah, so people can come to prosci.com. That's our website, P-R-O-S-C-I.com. Loads of free webinars, articles, tutorials, resources to learn more about ProSci. If you go to YouTube, we have a ProSci channel there and there's a whole set of Tim Talks which are kind of fun little five-minute snippets, people interviewing and asking me questions. And I'm going to be most active on LinkedIn. So if you go to LinkedIn, look up Tim Creasy. I'm sure, Phil, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And I've got three or four articles on measurement of change, some blogs that we'll put in the show notes as well. Fantastic, Tim. Thanks again for being on the show. Really appreciate you sharing your perspectives. It's always a joy to have a conversation. Thanks for taking the time. To everyone, thank you for listening. And if you're interested in having more episodes come your way every two weeks, just like the great one we had with Tim, please subscribe. Until the next time, I wish you all the best as you continue to lead change. <laughs>